Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books and Secularism. I'm your hostess, Annie Sepukaya. New Books and Secularism is one of the many channels in the New Books Network, a volunteer-driven project where we interview authors about their new books. This gives listeners the opportunity to learn about new books and new ideas from the authors themselves, and will hopefully make everyone dash to the bookstore to get a copy of these great books. Today we are talking to James Lindsay, author of the book dot 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 infinity plus god equals folly where he argues that infinity the characteristic often given to god is actually just a concept and one that doesn't help the arguments of believers james lindsay holds a degree in physics and a phd in mathematics and writes primarily as a voice calling for a change in our religious and cultural landscape his primary goal is to help people engage in critical thinking including their presuppositions James is also the author of God Doesn't, We Do. Only humans can solve human challenges. Good evening, James. Hi, thanks. So we are talking to you today about your book, Dot, 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 Infinity Plus God Equals Folly. So to start off, could you talk a little bit about your background and why you decided to write this book? Yeah, sure. Um, I... My background is primarily in mathematics. I went to uh, the university originally to study physics, and after finishing my bachelor's degree, kind of got chased off from it and switched to mathematics. And um, I studied, uh, you know, a master's degree and then went on and got my doctorate uh, several years ago. And um, as far as why I decided to write this book, uh, (laughs) there's... There's a lot of a lot of people out there, religious apologists, theologians, um, even if you read into like the 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 dogmas, the the official dogmas put out by the Catholic Church, for instance, on the Catholic dictionary. If you look up infinity, uh, you run into all these arguments from from religious people about how God is infinite. God is infinite. Of course, the most famous being William Lane Craig, the, the evangelical Christian apologist who stood up and talked about this on stage many, many times very publicly. And there are okay rebuttals floating around out there um, dealing with with um, these kinds of arguments, but I didn't feel like there were any really good ones in any one place, and so I thought it'd be nice to kind of collect them together. Um, perhaps sort of humorously, what really kicked me over the edge, though, was having a discussion not with a theologian, but with what we might say an anti-theologian with, with an atheist, um, Richard Carrier, has, you know, some arguments he has on his website. And he had contacted me after seeing my book and uh, asked me to review some of the stuff that he had said using infinity to make arguments against religious apologetics. And he and I got in a long discussion that ended up leading to me studying a whole lot more about infinity than I ever had to to earn a degree in, in math, even a doctorate. It's sort of kind of a sideshow um, that only a few mathematicians really, really get interested in and pursue. And so I learned a whole lot of really neat stuff, and I just kind of wanted to share it, some of it being relevant. And then um, it tied into the thoughts that I had about about God in the first place being that, you know, the, the question that sort of really got punted into major major attention by Richard Dawkins when he put out his his spectrum of belief and he said that you know he's a 6 out of 7 or maybe later he said a 6.9 and that means that the probability that a god exists is very low but short of zero well i had explored that and really dug into that and really started making me look at you know mathematical arguments for god that talk about probability mathematical um arguments for and against belief in God, and those almost all come back to infinity. And so uh, between that and the discussion I had with Richard Carrier and everything else, it got me interested enough to really dig in and then decide to share this since 
There seemed to be some kind of an interest or demand for it. I hear people ask me all the time, you know, is William Lane Craig right? Does this make sense? Um, does it make sense to say that God is infinitely powerful or infinitely knowledgeable or infinitely good? What does this even mean? So I thought, well, I'll just put something together and and see what, what people can do with it. Fantastic. You say that believers are drawn to the notion of the infinite like moths to a flame and that they use it to bolster their arguments, but unsuccessfully, obviously. How is it um, often used by believers to bolster their belief and why is that problematic? Well, you know, I don't I don't pretend to get into the head of, of the believer, but I think because it's such a big, almost unassailable idea, but really more than that, um, the idea that that it's mysterious. It, it has this quality to it where it's paradoxical, where things don't make sense. And, you know, I've noticed that a, a lot of times when, when you run into paradoxical beliefs or whatever with, with say, um, doctrines or dogmas or, or whatever that comes out of, out of the, the, the church or the, the religious mind, that they love to just chalk this up to mystery, and then they kind of go gooey over mystery. Um, John Loftus, in, in his newest book, The Outsider Test for Faith, um, has, a, has a line that I just love. It, I actually even remember the page number offhand. It's on page 219. He said, Wow. He says, Faith is a parasite on the mysterious, and infinity is a huge open door for being mysterious. It's very difficult to understand. It's very difficult to get things right. It's full of paradoxes. And then it's also, in a sense, you know, from a very simple, you know, superficial understanding of it, um, especially an understanding of it that predated, you know, the 1850s or 1870s, it's this notion of being as big as can as can be. It's, um, you know, the beyond beyond. And so that's, of course, where they want want God to be. They want God to be as big a deal as God can be, not some, you know, little thing that, you know, some bigger God could come and beat. In fact, in the book I mentioned, uh, in my own book, I don't know what page it's on. um, I I mentioned, you know, kind of the quintessential schoolyard argument The you know, we could say my dad can beat up your dad, but my God is is this big. And you can picture this as an evolution of religion. My God is this big. He can do this. My God. Well, my God is bigger than that. He can do all that. And this my God's twice as big as that, you know, back and forth, back and forth until somebody busts out, you know, well, my God's infinitely big because it's just sort of the. Um, it feels like the, the proper terminus of that argument, and it feels like the trump card that can't be beat. and um, Kind of the the motivation I have with the book, you said, you know, what's the problem with that is two things. First is to understand the nature of making that jump from like twice as big, five times as big, ten times as big, all infinite. It's, you know, infinitely times as big. What what does that jump mean? And that's really what the title of the book is, that dot, dot, dot. If you know enough about math to know that when we write sets that are infinitely big, we put a few numbers, you know, one, two, three, dot, dot, dot. And so the, ellipsis, oh, okay. the point what I'm kind of, you know, artfully, I hope, hiding in you know, math people, so art, right? Um, trying to artfully hide in, in the title is that everything that's going on in infinity is, is in those dots. And you have to jump over the dots to be talking about infinity. And so what that often leads to is, is basically saying a lot of stuff that doesn't make sense. And... That's really what, you know, motivated wanting to to address this. And it's also where it's a problem for them to have, have started to adapt this this concept, the infinite to to God. And this isn't a recent invention. I mean, you've got like I said, it's in it's in the Catholic dictionary that um, if I remember the wording vaguely right, it's in dot 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 quoted. Um, but the, the dictionary says something very close to uh that God is infinite is in every sense a Catholic dogma. I mean, in every sense. And of, you know, pastors preaching as Christians, we worship an infinite God. Uh, this was actually, there's a YouTube video of a pastor uh, at a church in Calgary that recently put this up. The sermon is, we worship an infinite God. So uh, it's pretty common. Even, you know, mathematicians who are believers throughout Throughout history, you would run into it. Uh, Cantor, the mathematician that worked the most with infinity um, early on and really changed how we think about it, 
believed that there were three kinds of infinity and the third biggest most incredible kind was was god is the infinite the biggest infinite that but even though we knew that didn't make sense and this point is is fun in a sense because it sort of drove him mad that he was questioning beliefs about god but he couldn't deny the you know mathematical stability or solidness of that proof or the proofs that he had done so he was all torn up about that and it was very difficult for for him of course i had even somebody just mentioned it the other day to me that aquinas um you know big big player in catholic history and, and defining a lot of the theology that the whole christian uh world follows now aquinas had said that god is necessarily infinite because he is being itself um that being a really interesting point as well because the being in that quote is capitalized so i assume it means a platonic ideal and that's kind of the other big theme of of uh dot 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 is that you know these religious beliefs rely on platonism Platonism is this philosophical position that, to kind of put it in a nutshell, that abstract ideas have a sense of, or a form of realism, that they exist in some, you know, real manifest way. And, you know, Plato said in a realm of ideals that's, you know, separate from the physical world. But um, this kind of dualistic notion that's in Platonic realism was something I really wanted to puncture. I take the position that there are abstractions. We have lots of abstractions. Words, for instance, are abstractions. Numbers are abstractions. The infinite is an abstraction. I think God is an abstraction. I think they all go into the same, you know, uh, same box of things, things that we use to try to understand the world successfully or unsuccessfully in, in different endeavors. And I just kind of wanted to be, say that, hey, I'm okay with the idea that there's abstract quote-unquote existence that doesn't mean quite the same thing as exists like, you know, a book or a chicken or a cow or, you know, this glass of water I have, um, which is, you know, physical and, and manifest and real. It's sort of maybe unfortunate that we use the same word for abstract existence and physical existence, but I really wanted to say I'm all right with abstract existence. We'll just let abstract be abstract, and we don't have to try to give it this realism that underlies, you know, the Platonic thought or Neoplatonic thought that that gives Christianity its philosophical bones um, and other religions in their own way, really, as well. Yeah, because, of course, most religious people, or I'd say pretty much all religious people, um, they don't view God as an abstraction. They view him as a, a being, not a person necessarily, but, a, you know, a being. Right. Uh, in fact, so, so that's where the problem comes in for you. Yeah, the fact that people are not seeing it as an abstraction. Right, they're seeing it as as real, the way that a tree is real. Right, like I say somewhere in the conclusion, I say you know they're they're the god the you know an apologist might go up on stage and argue for this very sophisticated philosophical idea, you know something along the lines of what it, what do they say the necessary agent cause of contingent reality, you know something very very philosophical and dry and precise and 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 abstract and the average believer doesn't believe in that the average believer may not believe in something so crude as a man in the sky with a beard but they do believe in an you know existing being that that lives and breathes and is part of the world and is part of their lives and you know very importantly will one day judge the living and the dead and some some of these people not a trivial number believe that you know if we don't behave the right way or we don't do the right things or agree with the right people or all get on the same boat that there'll be hurricanes or justified reasons to kill each other. I mean, there's really bad stuff. So um, to try to just clarify that, Hey, maybe this word God doesn't really represent a being, but rather just an abstract idea that we've tried to use for centuries to understand the world. You know, maybe I feel like that can, can, open up the gate to a, a better conversation about all of this instead of the typical, you know, oh, he exists. No, he doesn't exist. You can't prove this. Or you can't prove he doesn't. You know, all this nonsense. Um, that's very difficult. So, this, I mean, this is kind of my new tack. This, when, I, when I study the religion stuff now, um, my main goal is not 
studying the mathematics or any of this anymore. It's not a total like a sideshow or whatever of my life, but uh, you know, I think these mathematical arguments are interesting and important, but um, this idea that God is an abstraction is something I've pulled out of that. And now I'm really trying to work at understanding what the actual abstraction is. And so that's kind of where I'm going. I don't expect, for instance, unless you know, directly requested to, to, to write necessarily another book about God and math. You actually use a really interesting analogy. You say that apologists tend to confuse the map with the terrain. Mm-hmm. What does that mean exactly? Yeah, so this is sort of the role of, of abstractions in general. I mean, we could sound all, you know, all New Age or Buddhist or however and say that the word is not the thing and just leave it like that. But the words, words, for instance, are abstractions or numbers are abstractions for an idea or a thing. So I might say the word um you know, tree, and I'm thinking of of a tree, but there there are physical trees that 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 word refers to, and there, this is all you know carefully laid out. Uh, philosophers have carefully detailed out you know reference and and all of these careful ideas to clarify all of this. But the abstraction itself isn't isn't the thing, and so what does the abstraction do? That's sort of where, where I'm working. And what for me, I think the abstraction does is to use a term from science is it creates a model, a model of reality. And so our subjective understanding of the world really is our model of, you know, I, I ultimately am a realist in, a, in the sense that I think that there is a real world outside of our heads. We're not just imagining this. Um, and, the the model we create in our head is the subjective understanding of the world, the objective world outside that we exist in, that we're a part of. And it's very easy for us to get lost in these abstractions, even sophisticated scientific models like, you know, within physics, like gauge theory, you know, what with the new Higgs boson discovery and all of this. Um, that one being relatively hot or general relativity or quantum mechanics. It's very easy to get caught up in the model. And this is a angry debate, angry, angry debate in the philosophy of science to say that the model is reality. I, I don't I don't buy into that. I think the model is an abstraction that lies on top of of not on top of a reality. It, it lives in our heads. It lives in our minds. And it's it's like our map, which is also an abstract picture of, you know, topography. And we don't want to get confused between the map and, and the terrain that the map is describing. So the model for us, be that model one that's, you know, very scientific, like gauge theory, or be that model something simple or complicated in its own way, but less less um, intense, like language, um, or be that model mathematical, or be that model uh, philosophical or theological, that model is an attempt for our minds to understand the objective reality that we we have or that we we live in and experience and that model has to be recognized as being a model an abstract thing that we use to understand the real thing that we are a part of and interface with our experience but technically maybe cannot actually you know know in with a totally closed and solid epistemology, if we want to keep using fancy um, philosophical terms. I don't want to get too abstruse with my language. Sure. <laughs> well, actually, something that you did mention in the book that's not at all of, um, abstruse, which I thought was interesting, is you gave the game Candyland as an example of how we can be seduced into thinking that the map is reality. Right, yeah. Um this is particularly true of of mathematical Platonism. So within Platonism, you know, more broadly, this idea that Platonism being, again, that idea where um, we give abstract things real, a sense of being real on their own. Um, there, there's mathematical Platonism, and that, that's that we're giving a realism to mathematical objects, which most mathematicians are a little bit blurry on this because most mathematicians don't spend a lot of time fooling with the philosophy of mathematics or the foundation of uh, foundations of mathematics. And um, 
a lot of mathematicians are some kind of blurry blend between what we call foundationalists who believe that you can go back and all math can be written, you know, from these very, very fundamental ideas and, and constructed from there. Um, they're that blended with Platonism that these objects kind of have a sense of being real. And then, you know, among a few other things, um, because, you know, most of them don't spend time very, very carefully clarifying their position on mathematical philosophy. They don't have to. Um, I would say that when I was, you know, really working full time with math, I only do it kind of part time now professionally. Um, I would have considered it an outright waste of my time to dig deep into that. I don't have time for this. I have, you know, I have math to do. I don't have time to dig into that. So um, mathematics is, 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 a, is a system. Um, that you could almost argue it's a philosophical system based upon um, these these statements called axioms. Axioms underlie abstract constructions in general, and they're statements that we take to be, and this being a dangerous phrase, we take them to be self-evidently true. Um, we don't try to prove axioms. What we do is we try to prove results or theorems or uh, other ideas, other statements, in reference to those axioms. So I was wondering, you know, why are, why are there so many people that are seduced by, um, by mathematical Platonism? Why does it feel natural to say, well, the math does exist, you know, it has to exist. Um, and the reason is because it's kind of like Candyland. You have axioms and when you apply logic to the axioms, you get what's called an axiomatic system. That's all of the statements that can be proved within the context of those axioms. And um, once you name the axioms and technically have chosen the logic that you're using, the logic is not a singular thing, but of course we can look at different definitions of logic, but we can look at logics as being different um, methods of assigning truth values. And there aren't just truth values, true and false. We could have a truth value like, uh, 50% troops, 50% false, or something like this. And some, some do get into that, but that's, that's going too far aside. Um, we get this system, and once we name the axioms, and once we know how we're going to treat, treat them with logic, we end up with the whole system, you know, just magically, not magically, instantly is, is created from this. We don't know what the truth values of the statements in the system are without doing the proofs, but exploring it. But the whole thing is made now, the second that we choose our axioms. Um, so Candyland, as a board game, many of us played it as little kids, is, is a terrible game. It's exactly the same <laughs> way. In Candyland, I mean, no. If, if you've ever tried to play Candyland as an adult, um, you'll understand exactly what I'm talking about. People with small kids probably have and have suffered it. Candyland is not a game because there's no there's no playing. You shuffle cards, and if you know if you're in the know, the game is over. All you do is turn over cards one by one and do what's on them. And there's there's no skill. There's there's not even any luck beyond the original shuffle. Um, so there's there's no sense of actually playing. There are no decisions in Candyland. Um, you know, once the cards are shuffled and set down in Candyland, uh, your pieces are going the the game pieces are going to go exactly where they're going to go, regardless of who plays the game, or regardless of if it's the best Candyland player in in the world, which is a meaningless statement because everybody's just along for the ride. Similarly, the axiomatic system. And once we have our axioms and we know how we're going to treat them, the axiomatic system is all these statements that are true or false are going to be judged, however, by the by the logic. And those values are, in a sense, fixed and eternal. And, and you know, all the things we usually say goes with mathematical thought because they're just in reference. They're just consequences of those axioms. Those axioms form the basis statement. They're the shuffling of the cards. The game just, you know, is is done as soon as that happens. But for like, imagine, you know, your, your four year old kid playing Candyland. They love this game. You have to play it over and over and over again because they love this game that is not a game. Because for them, the process of discovering the cards is playing a game. It is, you know, finding this new stuff. Um, well, with mathematics, doing the proofs, doing the work, finding out these results is 
similar, although I will say less boring and more important than any game of Candyland, because the the results are already what they are, and we're just now looking at them. So, you know, a common argument you hear, discussion, it, I don't think it's as hotly debated as people imply that it is or joke that it is in math departments, is um, do we discover or do we invent mathematical truths? Um, and and the, the answer is, is sort of that we invented them when we wrote the axioms. We just didn't know what we were inventing. And now we're going and discovering the consequences of these axioms. And so I think that's where the confusion lies that seduces us, like you're saying, to come toward mathematical Platonism. Platonism in general is an extension of that same thing using something a little bit less formal than mathematics, but still a philosophical system or systems based upon axioms, ultimately, and then and applying logic to them in various ways. So I think Candyland is, is, is a relatively nice metaphor for that. Um, that's why it feels like we're discovering truth. So that's why it feels like there's the there's real existence to these abstract ideas and that we're finding them um, is because we've chosen axioms that underlie the model that we're using. And then we're finding stuff in the model. Uh, but ultimately, it's easy to forget that we sh in Candyland shuffled the cards or here chose the axioms in the first place. And so that's that's that analogy and kind of what what I was getting at with that. Is this related to circular reasoning at all in the sense that once believers have sort of decided that the Bible is the word of God, then they will use it to support their arguments. And when they need to kind of prove why, they'll refer back to the Bible. Or is this something completely different? No, I mean, that's, that's, it's really close to that. And that it, it gives hmm. the, the grounding for why they think they, they can engage in that circular reasoning and get away with it. Um, they have a model, a theological model, that includes an axiom or an axiomatic conception of what they mean by God. And that's part of their basic understanding of the world. And so it's something, you know, they take as being, quote, self-evidently true and just every axiom is treated that way and so because they feel like that is a self-evident thing it's their one of their starting points and they can always refer back to it in various ways so it becomes what we say is circular and the reason that it's circular whereas coming off of other axioms is maybe not quite as as legitimately accused of being circular, although you'll, you'll get apologists saying, oh, well, you know, you use axioms too if you bring this up to them. The reason it's different is because we're playing with that word, that phrase, self-evidently true. Um, I think maybe at one time in our superstitious past, something like, like a, a magical god in the sky or an age, a pervasive agency in the universe might have felt more self-evident then we will allow for, say, following the Enlightenment, you know, which has been a while now. Uh, so um, the the trick here is, I think, on that phrase, self-evidently true, we don't accept a, you know, magic explanation now as being self-evidently true, whereas people who are already invested in it take that as part of their foundation. So for us, outside of the system, or outside of that yeah, axiomatic system, we see it as, as begging the question or, or getting into circular reasoning when they start using it because we're using a different set of axioms, say um, empirical consideration of falsifiable hypotheses if we want to get all formal with it, um, which is to say science or, or evidentialism or something where we're, we're basing our, our our ideas on something, you know, that we, we feel like is or, – or, or justified in thinking is more objective than than somebody you know said oh well, there's this god that lives in the sky or I had this particular kind of feeling in my heart and therefore you know I know that there's this broader something in life or you know anything like this so I, th I think that's that's what's going on with with how axioms look they look very circular but it comes down to understanding what we can legitimately call self-evident and what we really shouldn't. Um, I would say the most maybe difficult chapter to, to really understand what I'm getting at kind of 
digs into that uh, idea. The one, I mean, in dot, 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 and that being mm-hmm. the chapter where it's called Bayes without priors, where I explore the idea of, of doing Bayes' theorem without assigning prior probabilities, which is usually the bread and butter of of doing Bayes or Bayesian reasoning or analysis. Do you have an example of um, a self-evident axiom that does work? You know, I don't have an issue with many of the foundational simple axioms of of mathematics. These are very clear axioms. Um, I'll turn to philosophy in a second, but for instance, you know, if we look at, at numbers, the idea that we can say that there is a number that we call one that represents having a single um, a single item, a single, maybe it's a ball, maybe it's an abstract idea, maybe it's a single word, um, but a, a, a one thing. That we can take that idea of, of oneness, if you will, and say, okay, so there's this number that we call one that describes the property of being a thing by itself. I feel like that is fairly justifiable as being self-evident. Um, if we want to take another mathematical example out of the same bag, in fact, we can say that if we take, say we have a ball and we put another ball with it, that we have now a different number of balls. We have more balls than we had when we had one. This is another, and I, I feel fairly self-evident case. When we, if we, to stay with the mathematics to show where the furry or fuzzy edges can get, when we start saying things like there is a collection that is abstract collection of objects, say that we call the natural numbers, all of the numbers that we would count with one, two, three, four, and so on, um, dot, 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 right? Uh, that there is that collection that actually contains infinitely many objects. That I don't think is any longer self-evident, but it's proven really useful. And so mathematicians kind of dodge the self-evident thing, although they've squabbled about it for 150 years um, or longer about whether or not that's self-evident. But that's that's a core axiom of mathematics now that I don't know that self-evident is so easy to to justify. So we have to start using more sophisticated tools to justify it. Philosophically, you know, I tend to think that if we want to look at, you know, talk about a, a way we understand the world, um, like I said before, that, I, that I'm a realist in the sense that I think an objective world exists outside of us, that, that's an example of, of an axiom. I think that we can't necessarily prove that we're not you know, brains in a vat or some matrix or something like this, um, but to say that the world exists, you know, an, ob- an objective world exists would, would be, I think, as close to self-evident as we can be if we're being intellectually honest as far as these kind of things. Another one would be is, you know, that my senses are sometimes right about the world. These are, you know, foundational axioms to understand how we can use evidence to to make sense of things. So the world exists and I have senses that are sometimes right about the world. Um, I feel that those are justifiably self-evident. that there, like I said, that there is a pervasive necessary agent that, per, you know, fills the universe and is its cause and its its tr- true nature of being doesn't strike me as being self-evident, especially with something as complicated as what agency may or may not mean. Um, so I, that, I hope, answers that, that question about self-evidence. Absolutely. Absolutely does. Yeah, it, it's actually it's. When you say self-evident, you're not kidding. You're being really self-evident. Because I think people assume that things that are not self-evident are, like, uh, I don't know, poverty is bad, let's say, something like that. Right. Um, but you're talking about really self-evident <laughs> on a very basic level. Well, yeah. Um, the idea, I think, in the best of cases, is that our fundamental set of axioms is as small as it can be. It assumes as little as we have to, and then we should be able to hopefully derive the other statements in terms of those axioms. So that's, again, the axiomatic system is formed by the axioms and how we treat them with logic. And so, you know, a statement like poverty is bad, if, if we take only the the axioms, I mean, I don't want to get into a detailed, careful treatment of this, but that the the statement poverty is bad probably can be analyzed with probably a very complicated, not as we say, Boolean uh, true or false truth value, but rather one where it's 
you know, true here and false in this way, but, you know, valid in this other um, sense by looking simply at, well, the, the world and I exist and my senses are sometimes right about it. So we have senses that if we want to talk, you know, we'll tie into Sam Harris's moral landscape here. This is kind of what he's getting at with the, the well-being being a, a bedrock moral value there. Um, poverty, you know, ultimately has to be analyzed against well-being and suffering, I think, of, of, of people. And so how are we going to analyze that? Well, if we really dig down to the bottom Ultimately, it's going to be by using something to do with our senses, I think. Um, if we were to build, for instance, imagine something like Sam Harris will put in his books, you know, like a perfect neuroimaging device where we can really get into somebody's head and really understand them. This isn't conceivably impossible. Uh, if we had such a thing and we could really understand the well-beingness or suffering, then we're really using an extension of our senses and then by applying, you know, a falsifiability criterion where we try to falsify bogus ideas and, and, and not accept those, then we, we use an extension of basically of our senses and the belief that people exist and have feelings to, to make a decision or make, to make a call about how, when, where, why poverty is bad, how deep is, it is bad, how necessary it might be in some circumstances for, for human well-being or, you know, all of these are difficult questions, but you're right. I mean, I mean, to take a statement like poverty is bad as a foundational axiom, it is, it's something, you know, ideological positions or political positions will do, but it's, it's, it's risky business. It assumes a lot. And I think we would end up doing better by coming down to, to much more basic axioms and working up from there, but that, that maybe a little convoluted. Sure. What is the Kalam cosmo cosmological argument, and why is it wrong? Oh, the Kalam <laughs> so cosmological argument was it's sort of kind of entertaining because it's, it's, it was originally an Islamic argument, as far as I understand, that has been championed by Christian evangelical apologist William Lane Craig. Um, it's wrong for a number of reasons. It's probably been poked with, you know, has more holes in it. It's been had more holes poked in it than a, than a spaghetti strainer. But um, what it basically says is that, it, you know, it follows a philosophical syllogism. It um, puts out the premise that everything, let me get this right without having it right in front of me, everything that exists began to exist. or No, everything that began to exist has a cause. That's what it is. That's the first premise. Then the second premise is the universe exists. And so the conclusion is the universe had a cause. And then, of course, the religious apologist jumps to, I know what that cause is. It's my God. So lots of jumping over over what I would call called in my first book, I called chasms of non sequitur. But um, why is it wrong? Well, there's a number of reasons that it's wrong. Uh, one of which I think is probably the most, it's my favorite because I think I came up with it. Um, I haven't seen it from anyone else is that, that I think it, it, com it commits an error of category. It treats the universe as a thing in the universe and that probably isn't valid. So, you know, the first statement is everything that began to exist has a cause. And then the second statement is the universe began to exist. So it treats the universe as something in that everything when really the meaning of universe in this context is everything. So I noticed it's not inside. Yeah. yeah so is, is the universe yeah. a thing inside the universe? And I don't think that it is. And therefore I don't think the observation from the premises applies. Um, the, uh, reason that I noticed this is because it ties into a paradox from mathematics that followed all of the infinity stuff that was happening at the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century. And Bertrand Russell noticed a paradox of set theory where um, the, the question becomes, you know, you can put abstract things in a set. You can have a set of sets, for instance, a set being a collection of abstract, abstract objects. And so Russell wanted to know, well, can you have a set that contains all sets? And so this set would have to contain itself, and that becomes problematic. 
in fact, you can be more careful if you really want to get Russell's paradox and nail it is, can there be the set of all sets that do not contain themselves or itself? And so this set that you would be creating has to be, but can't be inside such a set. And so th- this created a paradox and made a lot more work need to be done to reformulate set theory. And I think in a sense that this, the Kalam premises either are an instance of Russell's paradox or they, they echo it very closely. The universe here being the set of everything that exists is that a thing inside of itself. Um, that's how I originally noticed it. It's relevant to, to dot, dot, dot about infinity, not for that reason, though. Um, it's relevant to dot, dot, dot because William Lane Craig, the apologist that champions it, he has a book-length treatment on it, in fact, uh, relies upon lots of arguments about infinity. In fact, that's how he got famous for talking about infinity. That's why I got dragged into looking at infinity and God stuff in the first place. Well, what can you say about William Lane Craig? People would ask me, um, you know, what about his Kalam argument? Well, he doesn't need infinity for the Kalam argument. He's trying to prove that, that there's basis for that second premise that the universe began to exist. So he, he goes through some pretty sad to say fairly butchered arguments about infinity where he confuses himself, I think, because I will be totally honest here. William Lane Craig of every Christian uh, theologian that I've read has the most sophisticated understanding of, of infinity. I agree with his understanding of infinity tremendously. Actually, he's, he's, he's stronger in what what's known as finitism, which denies the existence, even in abstract of, of the infinite than I am. But uh, I think he has a very sophisticated treatment. He's very accurate about most of what he says about infinity. So it really kind of bothers me that it's, it's, it's really bothersome that he gets the argument that he uses for that second premise of the Kalam argument so wrong. In fact, since you had mentioned circular reasoning, he does ex- exactly that. He begs the question. His basic thing is, you know, we can't he says that we can't exist now in the present moment if there were an infinite number of moments before now because an infinite number of moments would have had to pass and you can't he says count down from infinity infinity isn't a number that's a big theme and dot 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 you can't treat it like a number so counting down from infinity doesn't make sense because it literally means you would never start what what process is, is counting if you never start but his argument relies on the idea that either there was a beginning of the universe finitely long ago, or there was a beginning of the universe infinitely long ago. It can't be infinitely long ago because an infinite number of moments can't have passed till now. Therefore, it has to be finitely long ago. But notice that he assumed there has to be a beginning of the universe, but that's the conclusion he's trying to prove. If we use his actual understanding of infinity, which I said is, you know, quite sophisticated, an infinite past timeline would only mean that however far back in time we look, we could look further. That's all it would mean. It doesn't assume that there was a beginning an infinite amount of time ago or that the universe, you know, has this progression of an infinite number of moments that, you know, used to be. It's that from our reference frame within the universe, we can look back in time, say, with our telescopes, by looking further and further away. And however far back we look, or however far back we were to look into, into if there was a hypothetical imaginary written history of the whole universe, it was written as it was happening. However far back we could look, we could look further, which is what an infinite past timeline would mean, according to Craig's understanding. When he says all this stuff about potential and actual infinity, he's, he denies actual infinities, meaning the existence of even abstract ones and accepts potential infinities, but this is the definition of a potential infinity. However far we look in that direction, we could look further. That's the definition of potential infinity. So for him to say that it would require an infinite number of moments to have passed to get to now assumes a beginning infinitely long ago, which just doesn't make sense. So, And it it begs the question of there being a beginning, which is what he's trying to prove. And so that's a pretty broken argument. That's not the Kalam itself, but that's how he tries to defend the Kalam now that he can't use the Hawking-Penrose theorem from, from, from physics or cosmology, which 
is a relativistic theorem that doesn't account for quantum effects and therefore was shown quite some time ago to not apply to the very early universe, uh, which he used to use to defend the Kalam. You know, physics says there was a beginning. Let's go. And then all of a sudden he found out he can't use that. And so he switched to this mathematical argument where he could be very precise and, and accurate because he has a sophisticated understanding of the topic. It, it appears that he, he's motivated to mess it up, and then he does rather spectacularly, and it's, it's a bit frustrating. Why is it important that infinity is a strong limit cardinal? You mentioned that several times. What does that mean exactly? So that ties into the dot, dot, dot thing. So that that's the idea that, I mean, this is kind of where this, we, we've already talked about all these ideas so far. So the potential infinity means we can look further. The actual infinity means that there's actually some, actually such a funny word here, some abstract yeah. infinite thing you know, collection that exists. So that would be what, what I mentioned earlier when we were talking about self-evident truths. The axiom of infinity implies the existence of an infinitely large collection, it implies the existence of an the abstract existence of a actual infinite set. And um, the thing is, is that there's, there's no way, so the strong limit cardinal thing is, is, is a statement that there's no way to get from the inside, from numbers, from a potential infinity to the outside to infinity without literally using the axiom of infinity to jump there, to, to, to take the one, two, three, and then dot, dot, dot. You know, a lot of kids used to say one, two, skip a few, 99, 100. Well, here it's one, two, skip a few. Aha, I have infinity. Um, where the point being is, is that the skipping was was everything. So the idea that the in, the first infinity, it turns out, the smallest infinity, um, what they call countable, another terrible name, countable infinity, um, is is a strong limit cardinal. All that means is that the only way that we can find it, that we can we can get there in a sense, is by saying we're already there to define it axiomatically. So here's where I'm really trying to tie in, hey, look, infinity is the result of an abstraction. It's an abstract idea. Um, then we go back to the Catholic dogma. The infinity of God is in every sense a Catholic dogma. We were as Christians, we worship an infinite God from the pastor in Calgary. Um, Aquinas, you know, God is necessarily infinite. Uh, one theologian after another, after another, after another, it was like, okay, so God is infinite. God is an abstract idea. Okay, thanks. You know, so in a sense, this right. is where I, I think it sort of enables me to, as they say, hoist them on their own petard. Okay. Yeah, and that's interesting because you, you say that when when they claim that God is infinite, in a way, they've already lost the battle. They're already conceding that that God is an abstraction and not reality. Right. And then I not only do they do this, uh, I try to make the argument that they have to do this. Um, they can't get around it. Of course, they're open. The second they don't, they're open to the threat that um, somebody else is going to come along and say, well, my God's bigger and you can't say he's not. And in the ancient world, if you could, you know, jabber about that the right way, if you had the right rhetoric, um, Paul, uh, St. Paul, if you had the right rhetoric and you could convince people that your one God was bigger and better and more powerful and more able than the other gods, you won followers back in the ancient superstitious world. Um, we have the Enlightenment, as I mentioned, and so now we have different standards of understanding the world. And so now I think that, uh, you know, we don't need to rely on that kind of a superstition, but you're still going to see it as long as people are going to going to believe these kinds of things. So they can't say my God is is only so big. First of all, who's going to get excited about that? You go to church, you know, somebody's yelling out there. You know, you got pastor, whoever making a million dollars yelling, you know, our God is an infinite God. The whole crowd swaying and all happy and, you know, tears of joy and all coming out of their face. Here's here's the collection plate. Um on the one hand, and then you have the pastor. Imagine the pastor standing up there and saying, our God is a big God, but he's only so big. You, know, you can't sell that, you know, so especially because, because they lack methods. I don't know if you probably have seen everybody's seen Peter Bogosian's new book, The Manual for Creating Atheists, and he talks about epistemology, the, the way of knowing. They don't have a way to know that what they're saying is true. They don't 
engage in falsifiable hypotheses, or if they do, they don't engage in falsifying them or trying to falsify them. So their their way of knowing isn't reliable. I used to say this is just theology has no methods. Um, they have methods. They're just bad ones. Uh, I mean, Dawkins points out what uh, authority, tradition, and um, revelation. And if you want to add literary analysis like exegesis, then you can do that. But those those are their methods. And you could really, I think, concoct a theology, a relatively coherent theology that could espouse or, or back up any position you wanted to. I, I think that's very likely to be the case because you don't have a way to know that what you're saying, you know, accords with reality. You just are kind of just saying stuff. Or as I, I've said in other places, you know, you're making stuff up. And so if, you know, they say, oh, my God's only so big, somebody else is going to be like, well, my God's bigger because they're just making stuff up too. And then they're going to argue and no minds bigger. And then where do we go again? You know, if they go to infinite, they lose. If they don't go to infinite, they lose. Um, right. They would probably be best off just trying to, I don't know. I, I shouldn't say just, just agreeing with me that God is an abstract <laughs> notion that they use to understand the world. Um, it's such a clean explanation, uh, especially like they kind of, Sorry, go on. Uh, so, so especially, like I said, as I've started to dig into what that abstraction might represent, it, it just makes a lot of sense. It's a much cleaner explanation than, you know, a necessary agent cause of contingent reality that happens also to have, you know, Christian dogma or Islamic dogma or Hindu pantheon, you know, anything that people want to just, just throw in there on top of this weird philosophical definition. It seems like they, they pretty much take advantage of the fact that nobody, most people who are, you know, not mathematicians and don't understand any of this, um, don't know what infinity even means, including themselves. Right. Yeah. It's just a, a sexy word. Exactly. That, that's exactly it. It's a big, sexy word. Um, it's, like I said earlier, very tied up in the idea of, of the mysterious, as, as Loft, John Loftus pointed out, faith is a parasite on the mysterious. Um, so they, they, I mean, they love mystery. I mean, I used to talk with, with a guy, really, really a great guy, very, very deep in his faith. And, you know, we would, he would bring up all these, these topics and want to discuss them with me. And, you know, I would just kind of look at him like, um, incredulously and ask him, you know, well, simple questions, you know, for instance, well, how does, how how is this supposed to work? Maybe you know how did how did how did the 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 sun stop moving in the sky? Which means the earth stopped spinning in the story from the book of Joshua, and nobody nobody noticed this. You know nobody noticed the earth stop, um, which should you know inertia exists, so something should have been noticed. How did and, and his answer would, was was always something like, well, well, that's one of the mysteries. Or you talk to him about the Trinity. Oh, that's one of the mysteries. And when he would say mystery, I mean, it would almost, I really like this guy, so I don't want to sound like I'm, I'm making fun of him or anything. But when he would say mystery, he would, I mean, literally go, go dewy-eyed, like, you know, looking off into the distance, like the, like the actor that played Jesus and Alfred Zifarelli's Jesus of Nazareth, you know, looking off in the distance, kind of vague smile and no blinking. Um, so it's like they really get into the to the mystery, and infinity's loaded with mystery. You also say that agnosticism is not a logical position. Yeah, I've you know I've said that too. Um, this you know everybody wants to argue about whether you know theism being belief and gnosticism meaning meaning knowledge, whether these things are independent or not. Um, Lots of people want to define themselves as agnostic atheists, and, and I'm not going to want to get deep into this argument. I don't really think it's a very fruitful argument. Um, I, I think a nice summary statement about agnosticism is that we don't have – we. I, I won't say there is no evidence because then we have to argue about what constitutes evidence and how, how evidence is, is defined, but there, there's no convincing evidence. If you take an informed skeptical or outsider position to a, to the traditions of faith, there's no there's no convincing or good reasons to believe, but there are really good reasons not to believe that 
um, spe- specifically that the religions, the, the tenets or doctrines or dogmas of the religions are true. But even that, you know, this pervasive agent that will, you know, that interacts in the world, there's, there's no good reasons to believe that that exists. But there are reasons, good reasons not to believe that it exists. So depending on how hard nosed you want to be about that, we can we can talk about agnosticism one way or the other. But I don't I don't think it's a very fruitful discussion. I think it just comes down to we don't have good reasons to believe, but we have good reasons not to believe. And it's up to each person to analyze that and decide how good the reasons to not believe are for themselves and label themselves as they will. You talked about Richard Carrier um, a little while back, and of course, he's a famous blogger on Free Thought Blogs. Mm-hmm. And you talk about the fact that um, although he also argues against the existence of a God, you still disagree with him in, in several aspects. Well, not necessarily Well, on small things. Uh, he's he's far more of a Platonist uh, than, than, than I'll accept. So I'm trying to burst the bubble on Platonism. He doesn't accept the term Platonist for himself, or so he told me. He says that he's an Archimedean, which means that he rejects the idea of infinity and is a, is a Platonist. So um, I disagree with, with, with his stance on, on whether or not, you know, on, I guess, mathematical ontology. Um whether or not these mathematical objects have existence, I am more comfortable apparently with with the idea of the infinite being an abstraction and that being fine than he is if he wants to take the Archimedean principle that there is no even abstract infinity. Um, there is a chapter in dot 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 where I address one of his arguments. I don't think he actually believes the argument that he's making so much as he's making a um, making a joust at theological arguments saying, oh, well, if you want to argue this way, well, I can argue this way, too, and here's what comes out of it, although I don't necessarily believe the original premises. But in that essay, which I included, you know, that, that blog post of his that I analyzed and then answered in, in the book, I included it not because I'm trying to like cut down on Richard Carrier. Richard Carrier is, is a very bright guy that does really great work. And he's got, again, a, for, um, again, for somebody who's not a mathematician, he has a very sophisticated and deep understanding of mathematics. So that's very impressive. I mean, in our discussion, he mentioned a lot of things that I actually hadn't heard of. And so I had to spend some time looking them up and, and getting my head around them and studying them. Uh, but he, uh, he misused infinity, and one of the one of the points that I am trying to make with the book is that people try to use infinity to make arguments, say about God or other philosophical ideas, and that's really easy to mess up. So I'm not cutting on it; I'm just trying to use it as an illustrative example, like that it's easy to mess up, and you know, it's not always just. I'm not trying to just nail theologians and say, "Oh, they're nonsense." It's nonsense, nonsense. Just trying to point out, it's real. It's really easy to get this stuff wrong when you start trying to pull the pull out infinity to prove that something you know in the in the world exists. It's easy to make mistakes. Um, so that that's what that was was about. One of your last chapters is dedicated to the arguments of Saint Anselm, um, who is uh, one of my favorites in terms of. Um, arguments that hurt my brain. Mm -hmm. Um, So what are his arguments and uh, why are they ineffective? Well, it's primarily his ontological argument, which I think we should all just start calling it, you know, the the God is a rabbit pulled out of a hat argument. It's a word game he plays. I mean, Richard Dawkins points that out in in The God Delusion. So it's seen a lot of play. Um, John Loftus and his Why I Became an Atheist just just tears it apart. Um, his, his argument basically is that uh, there is this this concept of, of, of a highest good, but that which exists in reality is is better than that which only exists in your imagination. And so, God being this best possible thing necessarily exists. It's um, it pulls God you know, like right out of a hat. Of course, he, wore, he I, I don't have it in front of me. I don't want to want to 
straw man his argument or whatever, but it's um it's it's worth looking up to just kind of you know see how he's played a very very tricky little word game um that might get classified now under under being modal logic and he uh ends up you know trying to prove claiming he proves god exists by by saying that you know that which is the greatest possible thing must exist because it wouldn't be it wouldn't be as great if it didn't so it must um and god is by definition the greatest possible thing i mean there's a few things going on with 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 his argument of course Assuming that God is the greatest possible thing is an abstraction. It is the platonic ideal of goodness, as a matter of fact. Um, so if Platonism fails, his argument fails. Why would he use Platonism there? All of Christianity's philosophical bones are neo-Platonist uh, neo uh, ideas. So um, it relies on Platonism, which I don't think is a, is a good, good philosophical position to take. And um, then he has his whole greatest conceivable being. And this is, of course, what got me interested in it. How can I use my mathematics to poke at these theological arguments or, or to do something different with them? I mean, his, or his argument has been, has been torn apart for centuries, so it's not new to have torn it down. But he says greatest conceivable being. Well, what we know about infinity, well, first of all, what we know about numbers is there's, there's no largest number. And so if God is only, you know, finitely big, like we talked about earlier, as uncomfortable as that would be for for um, or finitely great, as, as uncomfortable as that would be for for religious people to have to accept, um, then we know that there's no greatest because, like I said earlier, anybody can come along and say, oh, mine's greater. You know, if we wanted to use you know numbers, if one person said mine's a thousand, the next person could come around and say mine's a million and then the other person could say, no, mine's a billion. And they could just, this just goes on forever. Um, there is no greatest. But as it turns out, in the the end of the, the 19th century, what we found out about infinity is that if we decide to accept that infinity exists, so we might get around that by saying, oh, well, God's infinite. That's the biggest thing that can be. But what we what we noticed in the or discovered or found out in the late 19th century um, was that if if we accept the idea that there is one infinity, you can use an object that is counted by that infinity, that is enumerated by that infinity, to construct a bigger object, a truly bigger object. So if we have even one infinity, then there has to be a larger infinity. And so when you repeat this argument, you get an infinite tower of infinities. So there are infinitely many infinities, however big your infinity that you're talking about is there is a bigger one necessarily. And so if they want, they have two choices. They can deny the infinite exists, but then they're stuck in the finite or they can't where they, they have the constant squabbling over who's really bigger, lacking methods to resolve that, having no evidence to, to do so, or they can jump to the infinite. But the second they say God is infinite, you have an infinite tower of sizes there too. So this greatest conceivable idea you know, the Anselm's depending on doesn't exist. There is no greatest conceivable, whether you're finite or whether you're infinite. However big you specify, there's bigger. So there's no greatest conceivable. Unless we want to argue that conceivable is dependent upon human limitations, but why should their God be? I mean, which of them would accept that their God is is subject to human limitations. Of course, if we see him as a abstract model of the world, of course he's subject to human limitations. And we see that this greatest conceivable entity becomes, again, the platonic ideal of good, the very notion of goodness, um, in this case, I guess, literally personified, but uh, or not literally, figuratively personified. Um, but, you know, it doesn't get you to this, again, philosophical uh necessary agent creator of, of contingent reality and nor does it get you to a living breathing entity that is going to judge you for uh, you know who you decided to have sex with or whether or not you ate the wrong food on the wrong day or any number of, of other transgressions some more disgusting than others if people want to read your book, is it out in bookstores now? Um, is it online? It's online. Um, 
the dot 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 you can get both on Amazon and on Barnes and Noble. I've noticed. Uh, I've know that Canadians have complained about Amazon in general. Amazon.ca being <laughs> the, limited. <laughs> yeah, they're being there's some kind of I've I read about it. There's some kind of problem. It doesn't matter here or there between the way that they want to do their business and their distribution centers and all of this and some squabble. Um, it's just irritating for the rest of us. But um, I think they I, I'm not 100 percent sure, but I think they've had OK success with the fact that it's on um, on Barnes and Noble. It was published by my, my publisher's Onus Books. Um, it was published via Lightning Source. So whatever they distribute through, I actually do not know. I don't think it's in physical bookstores, though. All right. Well, James, thank you so much for being on today and talking to us about your book. Great. Thanks. You have been listening to an interview with James Lindsay, author of the book Dot, 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 Infinity Plus God Equals Folly. This is your hostess, Annie Sebukaya. Thank you for listening to New Books and Secularism. See you next time.